0: And let me encourage you to uh, grab your Bible, open up your Bible, and turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 4. Uh, Matthew chapter 4. Uh, while you're getting back to your seats, I'll just let you tell you, as I, I think I've mentioned, that we're going to be spending a little bit of time Studying the the first part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the Beat, uh, commonly known as the Beatitudes, and then uh the, the current plan is after that to look at the letters in the New Testament to Timothy and Titus. Um but today is gonna be sort of uh a, a introduction, overview, kind of sermon and uh start at verse seven, and uh start at verse seventeen and read uh, all the way through chapter 5, verse 12. So let's prepare ourselves for the reading of God's Word. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of God. What is the world's vision of the good life, of the the path along this world, along which true happiness can be found? What is your vision of that? How can one in this life, in this world, be truly and deeply and enduringly happy? It's a question that has occupied humanity, philosophers, religious gurus, uh, ordinary human beings too. Throughout all of human existence, and if we pulled ourselves, if we pulled our world, I'm guessing we would get wildly uh, different answers with a, a wide variance spectrum of answers. And if we look at human experience, we might see just as many different attempts to find that. But where do those attempts and answers lead us? Martin Lloyd-Jones, a, a, a well-known preacher in his uh, book on the Sermon on the Mounts," sa- says this, that the whole world is longing for happiness. But it is tragic to observe the ways in which people, ourselves even, are seeking it. And the vast majority seek it in ways that are bound to produce only misery. That is the deceitfulness of sin. It always comes promising and offering happiness, and it only delivers and leads to misery. What else ought we to expect when we seek life and joy? Happiness and blessedness outside of God, who is the source of life and joy and blessedness. What else should we expect to find other than misery? But what if? What if God came to us and told us, You want to find the good life? As my image bearing creatures in my world, do you want to know? where the path to true and deep and enduring happiness lies, here's where you find it. What if God came and told us that? And what if the answer to that question didn't lie where we expected to find it? That is, I think, what what the Beatitudes are. Jesus, the true king, has come to give us his authoritative word on where the good life in his kingdom, where true happiness is found. So we're going to look at three things, the call of the king, the values of the king, and the promises of the king. The call of the king is to repent. The call of the king is to repent. Let's back up a little bit and see what I think is sort of the the broader context for, well, all of Jesus' teaching in the Gospel of Matthew, but the Sermon on the Mount, no less, which is introduced in chapter 4, and Jesus' main message in his preaching is boiled down to one phrase, one thing. Verse 17, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then again, we see a similar summary of Jesus' teaching in verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And that is then the broad heading category for Jesus' teaching. He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, that the good news that the kingdom is here. And the needed response in light of that news of repentance. That's Matthew's summary of Jesus' teaching, including the Sermon on the Mount. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And so what that means is this. uh, Something significant, drastic, and radical has happened in the coming of Jesus. And so... A significant, drastic, and radical response to that significant, drastic, radical thing is needed by us. That significant thing is that the kingdom of heaven, the eternal reign and rule of the eternal God has come to earth. And the reason the kingdom has come near is because the king has come. Jesus is the king. And he has come. And that's what we see happen in the, the beginning of Matthew's gospel. And uh, in this short section that we read uh, in chapter 4, just very briefly, we see that the king comes and he, with his authoritative call, he calls his followers to uh, give their lives to him and follow after him. And then the king comes, we see, with his authori- not just with his authoritative call, but his authoritative power that gives us glimpses of his redemptive work where he will one day fix that's all that's broken in this fallen world. The king has come near. The kingdom has come near because the king has come. Jesus is the king of the kingdom of heaven. And when he entered into history and human experience, the kingdom of heaven broke into human history and human experience because where he is and where he reigns, that's where the kingdom of God is to be found. The kingdom of God, of course, hasn't come in its fullness, yet that is a future day when the kingdom will come in its final perfection and fullness. But even though it's not here in its fullness yet, it's truly and genuinely here already in Jesus. And it's really here in the hearts and lives of those whom, for whom Jesus is king, where he reigns. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount, I think, is in, in, a, in a very broad way about. What does a life look like where, in which Jesus reigns as king? The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' radical call to discipleship, what it means to be his follower in this world and live according to the values of his kingdom in this world. Jesus is the king and the king has come. In his person, words, deeds, his life, we see embodied, lived out the kingdom. And so in the lives of his followers, of, uh, the followers of the king, we ought to see in their lives also embodied and lived out the values of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is not an earthly system or kingdom or structure. It's meant to be seen and found in the hearts and lives of people, in the community of the followers of the king over whom he reigns. That's the significant thing that's happened. The kingdom has come. The significant response to that thing, the needed response is repent. Repent, Jesus says, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent. Because in order for the kingdom of heaven to be embodied in our hearts and lives, We need nothing less than complete and total repentance. And in the Old Testament, the concept of repentance was translated by a word which means simply turn, turn around, go the other direction. And that word itself is not adequate for the whole con- biblical concept of repentance, but it still gives us a helpful picture of what repentance is. It conveys this idea that now that this significant thing has happened, the direction you are going in, it's not good. It's not going to go well for you. And you need to turn around. And in the New Testament, the concept of repent the, the, the word Repentance is translated by the word which means a total change of mindset. And again, that's inadequate for the whole concept, but it's a helpful idea. The idea is the same. And the the assumption behind this concept is that humanity's actions, attitudes, and lives are fundamentally off course, headed the wrong way. And in light of God's kingdom coming near, we need a major course correction. I think of this every time I'm downtown in our lovely downtown in Chambersburg, uh, on the square, the the traffic circle. Seemingly without fail, every time people, someone does as I did the first time I tried to navigate these one way streets in our downtown. They uh, try to go the wrong way on one of those wrong way streets around the circle. And it's sort of humorous to see how how frequently it happens, but also how quickly they pull a U-turn because because they see, I'm going the wrong direction. And they quickly pull a U-turn to start going in the right direction. Way. And, and that is, I think, a, a, a little picture of this idea that God's kingdom has come near. And so you need to align your life and heart and character and conduct with the values of that kingdom. You need to turn around and return to God. Because the king did not come to affirm the direction and loyalties and lives and loves of sinful humanity he came to confront those things he came to confront a sinful humanity that is fundamentally headed in the wrong direction a humanity that is strayed from god a humanity that is in rebellion against god and a humanity for which total and drastic and radical heart and life change is needed I heard a a preacher say say this, share this story one time, and it stuck with me because it resonated with my experience as a kid um, that, you know, as a kid, we played in the basement a lot. And uh, we did a lot of troublemaking down in the basement. But nothing would get us to stop what we were doing and change course quite as quickly and urgently as hearing mom yell from the top of the steps, don't make me come down there. Right? God came down here. The king and the judge came down here. And nothing should cause us to change course as quickly and urgently as that reality. The king has come, so change. Turn around, repent, align your life with the coming reign of that king and submit and bow and obey, to and obey him. Because the good news of the kingdom is Is that this is a gracious King who graciously forgives sinners who have been going in the wrong direction. He forgives and accepts all who come to Him just as they are, sins and all. But here's more good news it doesn't leave us just as we are. He changes us, He transforms us. And just as much of His grace to us is His call to us to repent. And to live according to His ways, be shaped according to His values, not by sin and not by the sinful values of this world, but by His righteousness and the values of His heavenly kingdom. <clears throat> and uh, this is the call of Jesus, then, in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, to be characterized. Uh, to be the call of Jesus to let your heart. Be shaped and let your life be shaped by his words, his commands, his teaching. Because Jesus didn't just teach these values and ways and righteousness of his kingdom. He lived them out. He embodied them perfectly. And so we who follow him ought to seek to embody them and live them out in our lives. The message of the Sermon on the Mount uh, It's a picture of what the life of repentance and of belonging to the kingdom looks like. But when we do that, when we repent and seek to align ourselves with the reign of God in this world, we now find ourselves aligned against not only the remaining sinful flesh within us, but a world that is still in rebellion against God's reign, and I think this is why the, the Beatitudes climactically build up to the theme of persecution. And in a world, uh, sorry, in a, in a word, uh, one writer sums up the, the Sermon on the Mount in, in two, two words Be different. Be different than the world around us. Christians are called to live by a different standard. We're called to live differently, but far too often what the the world sees when it looks at the church is conformity with the ways and values of the world, rather than a counterculture that represents the values of the king it claims to follow. And John Stott says that no comment ought to be more insulting or hurtful to the church than the words, you're no different. The church and the world are and ought to be different in what they admire and what they love and what they seek and what they aspire to and what we treasure and what we do. But unfortunately, the world has crept into the church and the church has become just like the sinful world around us. Jesus calls us to live differently by the values of another world the kingdom of heaven. So that's the, the call of the king. The second thing is the, the values of the king and uh, chapters uh, 5 verses 1 through 12. These verses are commonly called the Beatitudes uh, from the Latin word for blessed, which you can see in many translations. That is the first uh, word of each uh, Beatitude uh, and they are descriptions of what a life looks like that reflects the values of the king and his kingdom. It's a description of what the character and life of a follower of Jesus ought to look like and you can see just sort of uh scanning through them there's two parts of each beatitude the first part is the description blessed are the or blessed are those who and then it gives a description of their character uh, a characteristic of the one who is blessed, and then the second part is the explanation of uh, or the basis for that statement, signaled by the word "for" in many translations or "because," and so it's giving the reason this person should be considered blessed is because there's something true about them that's a result of that description that we see in the second part, and so uh, there's some you know debate about how the word. Uh, blessed should best be translated some of that debate is uh, too probably too nuanced to be helpful, but uh, some some translated as blessed, some translated as happy. Uh, but what do these words convey in jesus statements here and um, it 's hard to boil all the, the what 's behind this uh, down to a sermon bite, but I'll try to do my best. Uh, in the Old Testament, there's two Hebrew words that are often translated "bless," and one generally is more of the divine pronouncement of blessing upon a person, and the other is more like a description of a life that is and ought to be considered blessed, uh, and that second word uh, occurs most in wisdom literature. It describes the happy and blessed state of the one who lives according to God's wisdom in God's world. And uh, Jesus' word here lines up with that second idea. Uh, the, the, the same Greek word translated blessed uh, that's here in Matthew is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to translate that second Hebrew word, which is a description of the life that is and ought to be considered blessed. And so I think we need to see then that uh, the, the wisdom literature of the Old Testament as a significant background of, Jesus, of what Jesus is, is uh, doing and saying here, it's, it's a description of the good life, of a way of being and living in God's world that results in flourishing and blessing and true happiness. Living in a way that finds God's blessing in God's world by aligning oneself with the values of God's kingdom. And so then, Beatitudes are descriptions of, and commendations of, and invitations into the good life. God's definition. Of the good life. And so, for example, Psalm 1, a, a, a very familiar psalm for many, starts out this way. Blessed is the one who is a beatitude. Blessed is the one who, and then it goes on to describe the life of one who flourishes, who finds the good life because they live by the values of the God in whom they trust, they don't live according to the ways of sinners, but they delight in the law of God and meditate on it day and night and worship God and take refuge in Him alone. And so they flourish. They're like a tree planted by streams of water which yields fruit and they prosper. Whereas those in the psalm who live by a different way, by a different value system, they aren't so fortunate. They aren't so flourishing. They are like chaff that the wind blows away and they don't stand in the judgment or in the assembly of the righteous. And the idea is that God's path, God's way is the only path, the only way of being in God's and living in God's world that leads to true flourishing and blessing and happiness. And, it, and the psalm is an invitation to the hearer to enter into that, to walk that path, to conform yourself and your heart and life to that path of blessing. <clears throat> and so in Jesus' beatitude, it's the, the same idea. Jesus is painting a picture for us of what the state of true, uh, in, in the words of one writer, what the state of true God-centered human flourishing looks like. John Calvin in his commentary uses the phrase True happiness. And I think that's a good picture of what Jesus is doing here. He's showing us the path of true happiness in God's kingdom. He's giving us his authoritative word as, as king on where and how true happiness is found and how, what we need to be characterized by, what our hearts and lives need to be characterized by. If we're going to find God's blessing in God's world, we need to align ourselves with the values of God's kingdom. This is the life that should be sought, uh, emulated, (laughs) envied even. It's his answer to that question of where true happiness can be found. And it's a very different answer than what a sinful world in rebellion against God might say. Maybe the world would say something like this. Blessed are those who are rich in spirit because they need nothing from God and depend upon him for nothing. For theirs is the kingdom of this world. Blessed are those who are happy all the time because they've been able to ignore or deny or distract themselves from the reality of sin and suffering and death in this life and the need for God's forgiveness and comfort and deliverance and redemption from it. Blessed are those who trample over others in strength because they'll get ahead, get what they want, and get their way. Blessed are those who fill and gorge themselves on every self-indulgent luxury and selfish pleasure that this world offers. Because they'll not hunger or thirst for anything, especially not God's kingdom or the need to live with a righteousness that honors him or a yearning for God's righteousness to evidence itself in an evil world. Blessed are the unmerciful, who despise the weak and withhold compassion and who keep a record of every wrong and make others pay every penny because that won't cost them anything. Blessed are those who look good on the outside but have impure hearts for they can put on a good show for all the world to see and they've already received their reward all the while ignoring the God who sees the heart. Blessed are those who don't love their neighbors or their enemies. Blessed are those who stir up strife rather than make peace, because they will win. Blessed are those who live in ease and go with the flow and never stand up for what is right and true, for theirs is the kingdom of this world. The world gives a very different answer to that question. The world tells us that those, that, that happiness is for those who find it in, in the here and now, who live for self, who ignore God, who live for this world and by its values. Jesus gives us a very different picture. He calls us to live in a very different way. By a different set of values, one that may appear upside down to the world and to us even, but only because this world and we ourselves see things through a flawed, sinful, upside-down perspective. And we need righted to see the rightness of Jesus' values and righteousness. He calls us to live differently, by a different value system, with a different hope for a different kingdom. Truly happy are those who live by his values and uh, interestingly enough though as we look through the beatitudes not all of them seem to be descriptions with which we would conclude uh, uh, someone was living a happy life or a blessed life or a flourishing life right they don't seem to be things we would uh, envy in, in seeing in someone's life or congratulate them for or aspire towards. Jesus' beatitudes are uh, paradoxical and surprising because they don't all describe people we would look at and say, yeah, that person is really blessed. You know, they're not pictures with which we would see the, you know, blessed hashtag posted on it, right? They're poor in spirit and mourning and hungering and especially when we get to the end, they're being persecuted and reviled. These beatitudes in many ways paint a picture of a paradox. Jesus says the good life is for those who in every, many ways, every way don't appear to be experiencing the good life. And that is because we're living according to the kingdom, the reign of God, but we're doing it in a world that doesn't yet embrace or recognize the reign of God and where that kingdom has come really and truly, but we're still waiting and praying for it to come fully and perfectly. In fact, that is one of the petitions of the Lord's Prayer that comes really in the the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done as it is on earth, as it is in heaven. And this is where the second part of that beatitude comes in. Remember the first part is the description of the blessed life and and it gives a characteristic of that one who's blessed. The second part is an explanation of or a basis for that statement because here's the reason they should be considered blessed because there is something true about them that is a result of that description. And that leads us to our final point. This is the promise of the king. That second part of the beatitude is the, the basis for which this person really and truly is blessed because it reveals that there's something true about us that the world cannot see, that our circumstances don't reveal, and that we don't always feel. It reveals that our things about, that are true about us, that we truly possess despite our present circumstances and experiences in this world. And it reveals to us as some of these, uh, uh, statements and promises are present and some are future. And no doubt all of them have a mixture of both of those things. It teaches us to put our hope in something beyond our present circumstances and experiences. And that that's part of the point is that that is how we find true happiness and blessedness in this life when we put our hope in something above and beyond our present circumstances and experiences. Already and right now, these things in some way are true about us. The kingdom is here, and so we experience its blessings here and now. In the future, these things will become all the more true about us when God's kingdom comes in its fullness. And Jesus' Beatitudes then show us God's perspective on things that we need to embrace by faith. Jesus' Beatitudes, one writer says it this way, that they commend those whom the world would dismiss as those who lose, who miss out, who are losers in life. But Jesus promises us that we who live by these values and are characterized by these things will not ultimately lose or miss out in any way, but will gain. Because the good life Jesus promises us is found by us losing our life, taking up our cross and following him because when we lose our life for his sake and for the gospel, that is when we find life. Our king... Our good and loving king wants to lead us to that which is good for us. That is his heart in his giving us his words and his commands. And in exercising his kingly authority over our lives. It's not to deprive us and destroy us, but to liberate us into goodness and life and blessing and joy. Do we believe that? And if we do, we'll bow to him and submit to him and follow him. Let his word shape us where he leads and calls. So let, let me just end by saying this, that the Sermon of the Mount is meant to be lived out by us, those who claim Jesus as king and follow him. You know, in the interpretation, history of interpretation on the Sermon on the Mount is kind of interesting. Sometimes it's been interpreted as sort of this lofty ideal that we're impossible standard, that we're never, you know, not meant to, uh, to uh, try to attain. And uh, it's only there to make us see our sinfulness. And certainly, that is a big part of it. Uh, if we read it honestly— that is true. It helps us to see uh, how, where and how far we fall short and our need for grace. But it's not only that. On the other hand, sometimes it's received as kind of a, a self-salvation, uh, right? Removed from the good news of the kingdom. But Jesus' teaching here is really meant to be uh, a, a, a discipleship uh, teaching it's jesus call to discipleship for all his disciples meant to be embodied lived out put into practice in the lives of his followers not perfectly certainly but gradually increasingly and genuinely we can only do so through the power of the gospel in us By the power of the new birth and the transforming power of the Spirit of God in our hearts and lives. And that is the good news of the kingdom that God promises through Jesus to put a new heart in us, to put a new spirit in us, to transform us and make us new. Perfectly in the next life, not perfectly certainly in this life, but genuinely and really and truly new We need the new birth promised in the gospel of grace to all who believe in Jesus. And we can only then embody the values of the king, of the kingdom in our lives, if we know and love the king. After all, aren't these beatitudes descriptions of the king we love and follow? And the closer our heart is to his, the more his heart will shine through us. Let's pray. Our Father, please help us to see the truth and freedom of Jesus' call to us that leads us to you, that leads us to put our hope in your kingdom, and that teaches us what is truly valuable. Help us to live it out. Help us to depend upon your spirit. Help us to seek more and more to represent Jesus and his kingdom to a world in darkness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.